Each week, nearly a dozen movies are released theatrically. 40 films a month, more than 400 a year. That's a plethora of cinema. Too much cinema. You'd have to be an addict to see all that. But don't fret. We've got you covered. This is Cinematics. Hey everyone, it's a new week of Cinematics. New episode, new movies. This is covering the week of Friday, November 17th. It's been an eventful week. You've been covering a lot of movies. I'm joined by my betters, Eric Holmes and Bruce Perky. Bruce Perky is wearing, rocking a white Descendants shirt. Bruce, what was the inspiration for that awesome shirt that you are rocking for this episode? Uh, my brother sent it to me because it was from one of their tours. But it's made to look like a corrosion of conformity shirt, but it's turned into Descendants. So it's kind of an odd kind of an amalgamation of icons from the punk-ish world, if you're aware of those bands. Yeah. Are, do you still have those punk roots, Bruce? Do you still listen to punk music from that era, from the 80s, late 70s? Is that... Sure, sure. I've got... Well, I'm going to see what I can see from here. The Clash, uh, is that, are they up? Are they, is the Clash big for you or are they, were they too populous for you? The Clash? Uh, back in the- I like the first Clash album quite a bit. And there's some good stuff on London Calling. Descendants, I got their first album, Milo Goes to College, on my wall. We have a little record wall that we switch out the records. So mm-hmm. you can just kind of redecorate our wall all the time with different records. So, yeah. Did your sons inherit your love for that era of music? Uh, my youngest, he likes... Green Day, which is, you know, uh, pop, more poppy and stuff. But he also <laughs> is into like, uh, I mean, he's 13. So he's into Rage Against the Machine and System of a Down and that kind of stuff. So he's he's working his way there. He's, he's getting his own style. Okay. He's working his way up to that, to, to the good stuff, as one would say, Bruce, possibly. Yeah, no, you're, you're... I, I like some of that stuff too. So I'm, I'm not against it. Okay. Eric Holmes, punk rock. Is that, was that a part of your purview as a as a youth when you were in your 20s and i'm thinking you in your 20s maybe where you were part of a band i'm I'm guessing you were so into music maybe 20 years back yeah my first band was a punk band kind of like a minor threat-esque i guess and then uh after that lean more towards more towards metal but kind of similar ballpark all around would Bruce, would he have enjoyed your minor threat-ish band back in the day, you think? The way um, you guys... I think would, so. Hmm, like, Because yeah. I haven't heard the songs in like decades at this point, but I recall they were pretty good for the genre, I think. Okay. But Fair I mean, I'm, I'm in the band, I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we were really good and then you listen to it and go eric that was oh not good <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of bias is a little bit of a plug for our cinematics patreon members for this month in november it is november by the way november november eric holmes is rocking the november stash it looks very very good on you eric holmes i had to capitulate to my family i took off my mustache bruce still has the, the beard and mustache working in i'm I'm wearing it for both of us (laughs) well thank you so much bruce but for this month of november slash november it's eric holmes's month what is your choice for patreon for our bonus episode again my choice is project alf starring martin sheen and a blinking you'll miss it cameo by lynn (laughs) shay and of course alf so well yeah he's he's in it too i suppose Last time I checked, I believe Project Alpha is available to stream on the Peacock Network on Peacock. It's streaming there. So I will be watching this movie. <laughs> this, is it a movie or a contraption? But who, who knows? I'm not going to spoil. Eric's not going to spoil whether he loves it or not. He's already seen it. Maybe he might see it again, but I think he saw it recently. I will watch Project Alpha. Bruce, have you ever seen Project Alpha? Are you excited to see this movie within the next two weeks? 
I am weirdly excited. It sounds like a real odd thing. Like it's kind of like when they did uh, try to reboot the Munsters, but not like the recent one, but like when they had the original cast when they rebooted it for TV, or when they rebooted Gilligan's Island and it was the Harlem Globetrotters as robots, if I remember correctly. I don't know. One of those kind of things that. where they take a yeah. TV series and they kind of try to revive it as a sort of a quasi movie, and it usually gets interesting results. All right, Bruce. Specifically, Bruce and I were around. I, well, you, of course you were too, Eric, but maybe you were a little bit younger, but I think Bruce, you and I pointedly remember the ALF era. Who knows? Maybe the 1996 film, which we're covering, we're covering the year 1996 for November, maybe Project ALF or ALF the movie, or I'd like to call it Eric's latest trash humpers pick. We'll see. It might work. It might work for us. The second pick for Patreon is courtesy of our members. Thank you, Ryan Smith and Peter Beta. Peter Beta, him being the head honcho over the middle class Film class crew, we love those guys. These are the Patreon members who picked some of the movies that we should check. The second, the second movie uh, to go alongside Project Alpha. Eric Holmes, can you do the honor honors? What are the four movies that we may use for our second pick? Yes, uh, number one we have Barbed Wire. Number two we have Trump. Okay, and okay, okay, kidding. okay, okay, Eric. Uh, that's enough. Number number one we. <laughs> Number one, we have Heart Eight. Number two, we have Long Kiss Goodnight. Number three, we have Two Days in the Valley. Should have been number two, I guess. Uh, number four, we have Sling Blade. Okay, let's see what we got. So I only have th- four things to randomize. The second, again, thanks again to Ryan Smith and Peter Beta for those choices. Let's see what we got. What was number one again? Number one is a choice. Heart Eight. Heart Eight. Or what is Heart Eight also? Sydney. Thank you, Eric Holmes. Hard Eight, directed by PTA, a.k.a. Paul Thomas Anderson. That will be our movie this month. That that is the Patreon choice. Thank you, Ryan Smith, for that choice. Hard Eight and Project Alf. Moving forward, we will be taping that record. We will record that show on November 29th, the last day for our Patreon members. So we apologize. November 28th, 29th, it just worked that way. Next week, it's going to be sort of a Thanksgiving weekend. A lot of stuff I need to put on the Patreon feed. A lot of spoilers that we have from several movies. I will be posting those things up shortly. So thank you guys so much for supporting us on Patreon. Let us get to our regular feed, our movies. Bruce Perky, how has the last week of movie watching been for you? Has it been just great stuff? A lot of the things to look forward to in this episode or not? I think there's some really interesting things to look forward to in this episode. It's been a real variety um, as far as styles of things to watch. I mean, we had, a, for myself at least, a documentary, part of a TV series, two documentaries for myself, I guess. I guess we're going to revisit Anatomy of a Fall, so serious Oscar-y kind of movie. And then uh, what Bruce, else did we have? The Anatomy of a Fall thing, that's a joke. We're continuing to kick the can. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> we can, we'll just wait till it gets its. Uh, we'll just wait till it's officially on Tubi, and then we'll say like, now it's available on Tubi. We'll talk about it. Eric, you are the co co writer in this submarine theory. Are you going to submarine the review of Anatomy of a Fall for one more week? You will break the tie. I'm all about submarining it. Bruce is not. He's a man of integrity. Where do you? What is your vote? <laughs> what is your really vote? Care. Will Anatomy of a Fall fall for one more week before we discuss it? Eric, uh, time, time will tell. Time will tell. Oh, but time. I, I, I'm doing. I'm doing. Talk about this week because the okay. longer it goes, the 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 more I, my brain just deletes from my memory, as it oh. tends to do. Well, I love that, Eric Holmes of the courtroom drama. A very good rebuttal. I I like that argument. Let us talk about Anatomy of the Fall. This episode that will be Bruce and Eric talking about it. But we also have Monarch. 
the Stones and Brian Jones, again, Anatomy of a Fall, The Disappearance of Share Height, and Do Not Disturb, a movie that Eric saw, which seems very interesting. And the box movie is Bob Le Flambeur. I think it's also called in English, Bob the Gambler. Let's start off with an Apple TV Plus project called Monarch. This might be the movie that I think a lot, not a movie, the series that I think a lot of people will be interested in. It's monsters. Kurt, the Russell family are in it. Eric and I didn't get a chance to watch it. Bruce, you're going to take a, take it away with what this series right. is about. Sure. I do not write down all of the actors' names, so if you need to spice that in there for me, go for it. Otherwise, I'll just kind of describe the basic concept. This kind of fits into the same category as... So, you know, in the MCU, you've got all the tentpole movies, and then you have all of the series that are out on Disney Plus that are somehow in between the cracks of the movies. They either link movies together or they give you backstory to a movie, something like that. All of the current Godzilla King Kong movies have are considered, I guess, part of a monster universe. I don't know what they're calling it, <laughs> but they do interlock in one way or another. And Monarch is kind of this mysterious quasi-government agency that somehow is involved with, you know, keeping them under wraps or keeping them under control or protecting the world from them or controlling them. You know, there's always been a little bit of a, a cloudy, murky causality behind Monarch. So that's kind of the basis of this series, right? And what is interesting, I think, about the series, if you like those films, and I'm, I'm a fan up or down on those movies, they're all fun or better. I think they're good to great. If you like those kind of movies, this is going to give you some good stuff too. Basic concept, you have two groups. You have a present and a past group. So uh, the most notable cast member here is going to be, or cast members are the Russells, right? So you've got Wyatt Russell and Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell plays the older version of Leland Shaw and Wyatt Russell plays the younger version. Throughout the series, you're going back and forth. So in the current day, which is, I think I didn't write it down, but I think it's like 2015 ish. Right. So it's about the, just after kind of the first Godzilla movie of the recent round, this young woman who was in that destructive event, her dad has gone missing and she goes off to Japan to where, you know, never having visited his kind of his homeland to go find him because she has these keys and she has some information about where he might be. She gets there only to discover he had a second family. Uh-oh, you know, he's he had two families. That was weird. And then on top of that, he was somehow involved with Monarch, which she knows nothing about. The minute she starts using the information she's getting, Monarch is somehow tapped into it and they're they're trying to track her down because they know that she's got some stuff that they want. This sounds very interesting like really yeah. well written it's it's pretty cool um I, I think it's pretty fun and and one of the things that a lot of people didn't like about some of the movies were that they spent a lot of time with the people and the stories weren't so interesting i think they do something similar here as far as spending a lot of time with the people but i feel like it's more interesting and more fleshed out because they have the time what is really great about this series i think is the the old stuff so you immediately are meeting that young woman's grandmother and Wyatt Russell, his character, what's his name, uh, Shaw, and he's like this military escort that's been given to her. Uh, he doesn't know what's going on. She is researching 
these creatures and no one knows what's going on yet. This, they're still new at that time. And they meet up with another guy and he's basically a scientist. So there's three of them. And they they go jump back and forth a little bit in the old time too, right? So it's nice to be 19, 1954, 1957. So you'll get to see them when they're brand new and they don't know anything about what they're discovering other than they're looking for something mysterious until there's times when they know what they're looking for and the government's involved and they're fighting with the government plus also dealing with these monsters. And every episode has some sort of, you know, appearance of monsters, either past or present. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. And it, I've seen three episodes so far. They build upon each other. I'm interested in both tracks, both story tracks, and the monster stuff is really good. So I think people who like those movies will be, will be excited and have a lot of fun with this. So no disappointments, meaning will there be people who might be disappointed because it's just a lot too much story for them where they want some something more of a creature feature thing or not? They might be. A, okay. They might be. I could see that. I, I think if you're into the movies, I think you'll be into this. If you were like, I watched the movies, and the only one I liked was Kong versus Godzilla or Kong Skull Island, because those are the kind of the most action packed of the of the bunch then you might be like, ah, oh, too much story. Yeah, I think it's worth giving a try no matter what. I think a couple episodes in, if you're not in, don't go for it. But I, I'm still in. I'm going to watch the rest. If I hadn't had all these other movies to watch, <laughs> I would have continued and finished the series. It's like eight episodes, if I remember correctly. So it, it was a, almost a bingeable experience for you, pretty much, barring yes. all those movies. Okay. And they're pretty good about giving you little cliffhangers. You know, they usually end with some kind of a monster battle or something that that will kind of propel you forward. Or, for example... When you get to actually see Kurt Russell appear, I think it's episode two, you're like, oh, he's in. And then you're like, oh, cool. And I will tell you, I've only got three episodes in, but he is not just like, I'm going to be here for a few seconds and not be here for the rest of the series. Because in episode three, he was all over that episode. So he's definitely makes a pretty strong appearance. Is he the thing in the movie? <laughs> I was watching his breath and I couldn't tell if he was breathing or not. So he might be the thing. I'm not sure. As Bruce was saying about peppering, the sort of your review with the other actors involved, the ensemble includes, along with Wyatt Russell and Kurt Russell, you have I'm my bad on the pronunciation, Anna Sawai, Kersey Clemens, we've seen her in a bunch of films, Ren Watabe, Marie Yamamoto, Anders Home, Joe Tippett, and Elisa Lasowski. Lasowski. So that is Monarch Legacy of Monsters premiering Friday, November 17th on Apple Plus TV. There's the first two episodes will be available. Bruce is one of the, the select few in the universe who has about eight episodes involved. So he's he's a, what does it feel like to be one of the Apple TV Plus's glory gloried ones, uh, Bruce Berkey? Oh man, if anyone wants any secrets, you might have to. I'm not going to say anything, but envelope <laughs> slides under the door. I might be able to give you some clues. How dare you, Eric? And I want a cut of whatever you're getting or skimming, Bruce Berkey. Apple TV Plus's Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Do you have a Sort of an initial rating from the three episodes you have. At this point, I'm kind of at a four-star rating, uh, and it could go up. I mean, it could go down, too, obviously. But I think, it, if anything, it could go up, depending on how the storylines kind of re resolve themselves, you know? Okay. Very, very cool. Thank you, Bruce, for your review. Now we're off to Eric Holmes for something I tell Bruce and Eric every single time we're done with the show. I go, Bruce, I always say, hey, Bruce, Eric, great to see you, but whatever you do... For seven days, do not disturb Greg Srizvansti. Do not disturb me, Eric Holmes. So, Eric, you took that to heart. You saw a movie called Do Not Disturb. It's out in theaters November 17th and VOD November 21st. The reason why I was excited about this movie is it's getting some really interesting reviews or good reviews. Are those good reviews warranted? 
what was your initial thoughts of Do Not Disturb and what is this movie about? Oh, what it's about? Um, let's see if I can figure that out. Well, it started off kind of, kind of, uh, you had the couple played by Kimberly Laferriere, Laferriere, and a roguing Christopher is Chloe and Jack, and they're an insufferable couple. And all I was thinking was, I cannot, these people do not need to be together. I cannot wait to, for them to break up and live their happy lives separately. But, uh, last they go to this, uh, hotel. Apparently, it's an adults-only hotel. They uh, meet up with a couple, played by Janet Porter and Christian McKenna. And this couple, you know, they're, they kind of seem annoying, like, on the surface. And then uh, Chloe and Jack go and meet up with them. Wayne's like, hey, do you guys party? You guys party? And uh, Jack's like, hell yeah, we do. So they go to their hotel room, uh, start doing some cocaine. Uh, it turns out the cocaine's laced with ecstasy. They basically swap partners and then that just makes the uh chloe and jack's their relationship even more difficult and at one point they're just like you know what let's just go to the beach and at the beach this guy wakes up and he's just like i don't know where i am i don't know where what happened i don't even know how i got here here take this and he takes a bunch of drugs out of his pocket mostly peyote and it's like here take it i don't want it anymore and he just walks out into the ocean and it just disappears. They're just watching him like, oh, he'll come back. Did he just die? <laughs> oh, my God. And so Jack's like, oh, we got these drugs. I'm going to sell them. Chloe's like, oh, no, no, you're a drug dealer now. And like they're fighting over that as they fight over everything. And then they're like, screw it. Let's take it. And then so they take the uh, peyote. Nothing, you know, they're like, I'm not high. Are you high? And like, no, I don't think so. And then they end up having sex. And then Jack keeps like biting Chloe. She's like, what the hell are you doing? And then they, you know, start kind of going on their little peyote trip. Then uh, later on, they have sex again. And Chloe starts biting Jack. And then this is where the movie kind of starts getting going. Uh, what do I say about Do I just end it there? It, gets, no, it no, starts to get. Your thing. Your thing, it, Eric. You're being very considerate. I'm going to tell you what it's about. I mean, so, okay. so you can actually see the boundaries here. Quote, a psychedelic horror film wrapped in a failed marriage and cannibalism okay. comes to theaters and digital this November. So you can unwrap whatever you want to. Okay. So then once they start taking this peyote or what they think is peyote, I think it's probably something a little more. They start just, they start biting each other. And uh, at one point, like Chloe and Jack's having sex and Chloe like just bites a chunk out of Jack's back. Jack will on his back. Oh, and uh, it, <laughs> okay. it, it, uh, it, another point, like, uh, like, so basically as they take more peyote through the, the rest of the movie, they get not really a hunger for human flesh. They just kind of do it. Like they'll wake up just kind of like you see a, like, a uh, maybe a werewolf movie that someone will wake up naked in the middle of the woods covered in blood. And they're like, what happened? Like they wake up and there's a dead body in their house and they're like, what did we do? And like the body's like, you know, and so that's, that's kind of what it is. And it's, this movie's really, really good. It started off kind of annoying. Cause I was like, Oh no, I, I don't want to watch this movie. But like, as it, they started taking drugs and as things got more crazy, this movie went from like zero to weird, really, really fast. And I kind of, kind of loved it. And it's uh, would you call I, it I guess like slow burn a little bit, and then it just becomes a whole different level of just. Actually, maybe maybe I'm wrong. It's not like like it does turn crazy real fast, but it kind of sneaks up on you. 
like it, you know, Greg, you're you're a big druggie, you know this. And like when you take drugs, you're like kind of like I don't, I don't feel anything. And then all of a sudden, like something just seems odd to you, and then it just kind of creeps up on you. This is yeah. kind of what this movie does. Okay, yeah. And like it, it goes, you know, it it goes from zero to forty real quick, but it's like it it does kind of uh, kind of eases the end at the same time. It, it's weird to say, but yeah, this is. Uh, the very beginning of this movie and the very end of this movie, I felt like completely different because like opening, I was just like, oh, it's, oh no. And I, I I think the movie's only like an hour and 20 minutes or hour 30. And it's like real short, but it has like that, the way that it presents itself, it kind of, I don't want to say it's epic, but it kind of, it, it feels longer than it is, but not in a bad way. It feels it- like a full meal. Is it gory? Is it very good in its thriller elements? Anything you would suggest people like not into gore? Is it there, too- there are some parts that are, but I think it's kind of, I think it does like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing where I think it's less gory than it seems because the, the spots that they use it are really well done. So in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, it's just a bloodbath from front to back. But then like you would actually watch and go, ah, they kind of like cut away or more suggestive like they use a lot of scent like there's definitely parts where um you know you see uh one of them like just eating flesh but then like the sound effects they use and stuff or i think sell it more than the visuals do um so it's, it's definitely gory but i don't think it's as gory as it could be i guess kind of like uh like fresh would be a good example of this oh, okay good, where, good. Where, where like fresh has like uh it's definitely gory but it it picks its moments so when it does get there, it's a lot more, you know, it hits you a lot harder than it would if it were just blood, 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 blood. So that is Do Not Disturb in theaters November 17th. For most of you guys, you may be able to check it out on VOD November 21st. What is your rating on Do Not Disturb Air Combs? I'd probably give this a four and a half. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah this is <laughs> this is definitely like out of left field. Again, the title, I will forget that title by next week, but the movie, I will not forget at all. What's Bruce going to think of this movie? I think Bruce will like it. In fact, I think Anderson might like this. Who's, is this I, I, a, I don't, who's the, Anderson? Is he? Huh? Anderson <laughs> Cowan? Oh, okay. of, uh, of the film vault thing. <laughs> the, you may have heard of him. Yes. Okay. And, and what? But, uh, what uh, yeah, documentary but, loaded for bear, of course. Of course. Yeah, but it, it's got enough like kind of dark comedy that I think uh, Anderson could really sink his teeth into. I did not just say that. I just said that. <laughs> Why did you like, become I, the resident comic? I, I've been listening to all of the past episodes. Little little gems there, Eric Holmes. Love yeah. it. A lot of rim shots. Sink his teeth. Yeah, I've, I've been seeing stand up comedy once or twice. <laughs> Bombed <laughs> once or twice, but I still did it. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so this was a surprise. I am glad that you're giving four and a half stars to Do Not Disturb. Hopefully, I don't know. Bruce and I don't, I, I I don't know if we have time to watch it, but I think it's, it's a good recommend. So if people have five or six bucks on November 21st, check out Do Not Disturb. Get back yeah. to Eric and tell, tell Eric what you think of this movie. Now, it's my turn to actually review a movie with Bruce Berkey. The Stones and Brian Jones hits. There was a one night only event from last week as far as screening wise, but it will be available everywhere on November 17th. And that's really good. So, yeah, November 17th, which is this Friday. And it's directed by Nick Broomfield. Very good documentarian. I love his style. I love a bunch of his movies. He's just, and he narrates, I think, most of his movies. He's just has that certain aesthetic that I appreciate in documentarians, documentary filmmakers. This movie is, this doc, doc is only 93 minutes. And really, there's nothing much to say about the plot of this doc. It's about the Stones and Brian Jones. Actually, the moniker could be flipped because it's really mainly about Brian Jones 
and his relationship with the Stones. If you're a fan of the Rolling Stones, you're going to appreciate this documentary. If you're like me, who had a passing, I have a passing interest in the Rolling Stones. I have a few of their albums. I wanted to learn a lot more about Brian Jones and why he was kicked off the band or why he was fired from the band. This gives you all the information you need to know. So this is pretty much a, I don't want to say predictable, but it's going to appeal to a straight audience as far as if you're a Rolling Stones fan and if you want to know the history about Brian Jones. It gives some really insightful stuff because you get to talk to his family, family, uh, family, uh, former lovers, former girlfriends, and especially some members of the Rolling Stones. There's also some archival footage that Broomfield accrues throughout the documentary. So I, I, this is a solid recommend for me. Bruce, do you feel the same way as far as this documentary? Yeah, this is this is one of those ones that I think it's there's a perfect spot I think to watch this documentary, and I think it's kind of like you talked about that person who has a passing interest in the Stones or kind of kind of likes the Stones but doesn't know a ton about them, especially maybe their early years. Maybe you've heard of Brian Jones, maybe you haven't heard of Brian Jones. That I think is going to be the most value added. I'm I was pretty familiar with the general story of Brian Jones and who he was and kind of the role he played and how he was essentially the founder of the Rolling Stones and considered the most talent musician at least in the in the early like six to seven years of the band and how he eventually had a falling out and then i kind of knew his fate with the band i'll leave it at that um so that stuff wasn't really very much value added to me and that is the problem for me so i think that if you're kind of in my camp, you're pretty familiar with him and his story then this becomes kind of like a rock star guy becomes famous Gets into drugs, has problems, womanizes a lot, has problems, Eats doesn't get along with the band. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one of the, it's like, okay, uh, I have heard this in every behind the music ever made back in the 90s. It isn't very interesting to me in that aspect. The stuff that it hinted around with his relationship with his father and his parents and stuff like that, sure. to me, that was some of the most interesting stuff. So I kind of would allow, maybe heard a little more of that would have been good for me. And there was tons of stuff about all the various women that he essentially fathered children with and basically forgot about. And that didn't make me like him anymore, that's for sure. So um, for me, it was like interesting enough, but it definitely didn't add much to me. So I would I, give it like a barely recommend. I, I would have liked interviews with the children, maybe even just for a yeah. short segment. Wouldn't that would have would that have helped that would have a been little interesting. bit? Well, they kept saying like, oh, uh, uh, five children by different, <laughs> basically groupies or women that he said, oh, I love you. And can I live in your house for a while? Oh, I'm going to have a, you, I'm going to make sure you have a child and then I'll be out. That's kind of what he did a lot. <laughs> so not the greatest guy. So if we, yeah, again, like I think Bruce, what you said is correct. If you, you're like someone like me who knows, has a passing interest in the Rolling Stones. This is, and Brian, trying to understand who Brian Jones is, was, I think this is a perfect documentary to watch as a primer or primer to just the Rolling Stones history as far as that universe goes. So for me, yeah, the Stones and Brian Jones available everywhere on November 17th. Four star rating for me for this documentary. What about you, Bruce? Three stars for me. It's just barely passes. Okay. That's not, it's a mild recommend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Barely, I got, barely passes. I, I I will take a barely pass. So I'm, right. I'm fine with that. So next up is, I was going to go for another documentary. This is, so three stars for Bruce, four stars for me and Eric, four and a half stars for Do Not Disturb. I wanted to kick the can one more week, but there's a movie that's 151 <laughs> minutes that I remember Bruce Perky about a month and a half ago was asking for screener links for us to cover. And I looked at the running time and I was like, 
151 minutes. Maybe I'll look at other movies and sort of overlook this movie. And then as the weeks go on, Bruce watches it. And then Eric watches it. And then I feel guilty that Bruce and Eric have, have seen it. And they have their own reaction to this movie. Eric was talking about, oh, maybe we should do a spoiler. And I'm just kicking the frigging can on this movie. And I think I'm doing a really horrible job at movie reporting in lieu of uh, Anatomy of a Fall. I think it's sort of a murder mystery investigation about a couple and someone is killed. And, so uh, you know, who, who, Eric or Bruce, Bruce, you want to just talk about what the plot line is? And then, Eric, you can. Are you want to do it, Bruce? Either one. I don't care. Yeah, so ba- basically, the the short version is a uh, husband, wife, and their blind child uh, live in this house together. The blind child's walking around outside and bumps up on a body, and it's his dad. And he uh, fell. They sus- supposedly fell off the roof or something, but he's on the ground dead. And uh, the cops show up. They do a bunch of uh, forensics to figure out what's going on. They think it's a suicide, but they're not quite sure. And as they look into it more, they think perhaps the wife had something to do with it. And it goes from, I guess, soup to nuts from the time the, the body is found all the way to the court case at the end and figure out whether she's found guilty or not guilty. I don't know, Bruce, much more than that as far as story goes. Um, the setup at the beginning, I, the one thing I, I think is kind of interesting is it starts out with the the woman. Um, did I write down the names here? Hmm, maybe. I, I did two weeks ago, but it's... Yeah, right. <laughs> That's my um, fault. That's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think it's Sandra. Uh, Sandra Huller, I believe, might be the main the main woman. I'm, if I'm wrong, I apologize. Uh, by the way, this is directed by Justine Triette. It starts out with the, the wife, and she's being interviewed for a new book or something about being an author. She's a famous author. She's being interviewed. And very quickly, you hear the husband who's upstairs renovating the attic area of this kind of chalet in the mountains. He puts on music and he puts it on deafeningly loud during an interview that she's having. And it's obvious that he must be doing that to annoy her. She gets very annoyed. It cuts off the interview. So that's kind of the setup. The kid goes out and walks the dog. Kid comes back, stumbles upon the body. The interviewer has left before this. So the obvious question is, oh, well, they were fighting. So maybe maybe she killed him. That's kind of a little part of that setup, too. I think that, uh, and once again, I'll let Eric chime in on what he thoughts about the overall kind of approach of this movie. What's very interesting about this movie, first of all, it's a good courtroom drama. It's an interesting courtroom drama. It sets it up in a way that you you really can be torn on whether you think she's guilty or not. They don't give you a lot of tells. They want you to really kind of be in the seat of a juror in that sense. Like you're getting evidence, but you're not shown enough to fully decide. But what I thought was very, very interesting about this movie is the kind of the path of the child, because the child definitely thinks one thing. And then the child is there through the whole trial, even to the point there's parts of the trial where there's going to be testimony and even um i think there's some recordings and stuff they're going to play and they're like well you might not want to have the child here for this and he's like no i should be able to hear this this is my life too i should be interested in part of this you're basically watching this child after the fact get an inside view of his parents relationship uh, in a way that a child usually wouldn't that is a really really interesting twist i think this movie has uh, i think it's a, a really fine dramatic crime movie it's not really a thriller i would say but a a crime trial drama i would also add like the courtroom drama aspect of it doesn't really feel 
on the surface, it definitely appears like a courtroom drama. The way that lawyers argue back and forth feel more like a, a court of public opinion than an actual court. A lot of their arguments are not arguments you typically find in a courtroom. It's like, oh, uh, t- here's here's one hypothesis of how he could have fell. And here's another hypothesis. And it's like, well, they're equal. So the burden of proof is on you. Yeah, but you can't prove that that's not how it happens. It's like, that's no. <laughs> well, you're not you're not guilty until proven innocent. It's the other way around. But so. Eric, it, that's a, it, that's true, right? But isn't it that's kind of weird about this? It's a French court. So yeah. it's just, it's different. It's like this kind of this freewheeling, almost like dialogue they're having. And I thought that was kind of fascinating how they did stuff. Yeah. Well, also like the, so the uh, prosecuting attorney, he's like constantly interrupting the defense attorney. Like there might be one time where he didn't interrupt them, but he's like constantly interrupting. And then as soon as the prosecuting attorney says something and someone chimes in, he's like, Hey, I'm talking here. It's like, that's, (laughs) I'm not familiar with the French court, but that cannot be how they run things there. But that's absolutely how people argue in real life. So yeah. it, it, it's kind of a, it's, I, I don't know if that's what they were going for, but that's definitely what I got from this as far as the courtroom part is concerned. And I think, I think it kind of works with the, uh, what you mentioned with the kid. It's like whether or not someone's guilty or guilty or not guilty in the eyes of the law, the court of public opinion has something to say too. And I, th- yeah. I think they, they merge. So like what I'm describing sounds like a flaw, but I think it's actually a feature because it kind of takes, the way that people argue in real life with fallacies and all set in a courtroom setting, it kind of merges the two ideas, I think. And one other thing I'll add into this, the format of the movie. So, right, we have initial event. We don't see the whole thing, obviously, so we don't know what happened. Then you have a whole bunch of courtroom stuff and some drama in inside and outside the courtroom. You would expect throughout the courtroom drama to maybe have flashbacks to the past to see the events, which they resist throughout to doing that, except for one key extended flashback, which is pretty amazing, where there's a audio played. And then instead of just playing the audio, they actually cut to the scene. And they really, really intelligently, and this is where I think writing slash directing is really key in this movie, at a point in in that audio that we're viewing the event of, they cut away before violence occurs. So that when the violence does occur, you still don't know exactly who perpetrated the violence or how that went down. So it's very, very um, clever about how it keeps you constantly having to weigh back and forth kind of where you feel about the guilt and innocence of the various members of this trial. Okay, so that is... Oh, Eric, you want to say something? You you were about to say something? No, no, that's... Uh... I think, I think I think I like I, I would have to get into some spoilers, but I I think yeah. just overall, I, it kind of uh, especially with the courtroom stuff, it does stuff that under normal circumstances would bug the living crap out of me. But the way they handle it in this it was it's kind of like I get what you're doing and I kind of like it. Okay, Anatomy of Fall running at 151 minutes. I'm going to put words into Eric and Bruce's mouth and saying that that 151 minutes didn't feel like a slog. It seems like you guys really enjoyed. This film, let's get to ratings. First off, Eric Holmes, your rating. I'd probably go five stars on this. Okay. Bruce Berkey? Four and a half. Four and a half stars. Okay. Five stars, Eric. One of your favorites of the year. I'm assuming with an enemy of all, 
Four and a half minutes oh, of bed. I mean, the courtroom drama, you get that half-star bump. For <laughs> yeah, you. Half the, half the half-star I, bump. Oh, I, I would point out, they, I, I believe they also covered this on the Hollywood Persona mm. podcast with Mitch Burns. Burns, yes. And uh, Burns. you should probably listen to that because they, they go like really deep into this. Mm. So there you go. That's Check it good. out. Check out Mitch Burns, the Hollywood Persona podcast. Check out the Middle Class Film Class podcast with Peter Beta. And of course, Jason Kleberg's Force 5 podcast. These are our buddies and our fellow what what would you say bruce our cinematic brethren our cine fellow cinephiles just friends i don't know how to speak in human terms what should i say yeah bruce? that that our fellow cinematics yes <laughs> that's oh, cinematics okay they, they are and their own cinema holes oh wait no that's us. Yeah, <laughs> the family show you know what you know I, I actually changed our show from explicit to clean but cinema holes is not that's not a that's not a bad word because you're yeah. combining i, I like it holes is very good family show i love it i love it before we get to recommends and bruce's box film of the week which is bob the gambler let's get to another documentary we are documentary laden this week with the disappearance of share height today this much publicized author has agreed to face an audience filled entirely with men the height report the book stunned everyone with the clitoris and the vagina is one orgasm sexually satisfying if not how many how that's done should be incorporated into a lot of lovemaking every woman's gonna want to read this and men should too they hated the book. They tried to sabotage it. Keep it down. It sold like hotcakes. It's the 30th best-selling book of all time. How can you shut somebody like this up? Cher Height was this wonderful creature, very striking, very beautiful. But her real interest was more intellectually advanced. If you wanted to write about sex, you would just make men totally crazy. She was criticized by some of the reviewers. What she says is always controversial. Report gave voice to people who never had a voice to experiences thousands of women never even discussed before. This is going to lead to real changes in sex between men and women. Is there any danger in that? Equality doesn't seem dangerous to me. So criticized her methodology so they could discount her findings. Everything I've heard about her has been negative. A lot of people who criticize the book haven't even read the book. Cher knew sexuality could be weaponized by the right with the deadliest consequences. The work speaks for itself. She fought too hard with her adversaries. You've been accused of man bashing. Yeah, and it's going to happen right here. She can't make a living in this country. She's being silenced. People walking by her apartment. The doorman said she doesn't live here anymore. And she's gone. She just disappeared. There's a disappearance of feminist knowledge. Century after century, decade after decade. Well, who is she? You've got to be kidding me. I don't hear people talking about it anymore. I just find it troublesome that younger women will have to fight the same battles over again. I just want to be a woman. And I'm reading from the description. It says, quote, a thrilling portrait of groundbreaking sex researcher or sexologist Cher Height, her explosive rise to fame and notoriety, and her mysterious retreat from the public eye. It hits, this doc hits select theaters starting Friday, November 17th at Los Angeles's 
AMC Burbank 16. So we're assuming by November 24th, maybe first week of December, there will be some kind of select theater rollout for the disappearance of Cher Height. As far as just movie star sheen to it, the project is executive produced and narrated by Dakota Johnson. And once you know a little bit about Cher Height, who is the author of that sex book, sex research book, The Height Report, which is really big in its day. It's sort of a counterpoint to the Masters and Johnson survey. And it's a big deal back in the 70s. I think through the 80s as well, Cher Height as an individual, her figure, her knowledge might have been diminished over the years. And this documentary attempts to shed light on who Cher Height is, was, and why did she disappear? Bruce, did this documentary appeal to you? Yeah, it did. Uh, And this is kind of interesting because if you look at the two documentaries we had this week, you could say that both could have something in common. Both are about people who were very famous in their day in the 70s, late 60s. So people now watching it are going to have a value added no matter what by like discovering these people, right? So that they have those that that in common. The difference to me is that the story of Cher Height is fascinating and has broad implications on society and sexuality and uh, women's rights and just the nature of how we deal with that in the media and how we deal with that in politics. There's a lot going on here and it's very, very interesting. Also, I thought about this as Dakota Johnson is, you know, narrating the parts where uh, Cher Height's writings are being read because there's a whole bunch of real footage of Cher Height, like tons, you tons and tons. So most of the time it's actually Cher Height that you're hearing and seeing. But I thought if they ever make a biopic of this, then Mia Goth would be fantastic for this role as well i agree uh, um, is a very mag- she she was yes. a very magnetic person yes she so just to kind of give lay the groundwork she was very beautiful throughout her life she in fact she started out as a model she well she started out in graduate school i'm not gonna go through the whole thing she starts out in graduate school immediately is discounted by the professors and stuff as you know, you didn't do this. You probably got this from somewhere else. You didn't actually write this. Yeah, you're not intelligent. You're a woman, yeah. basically, what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, immediately. Did you watch it, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I didn't see you on here, so uh, I didn't know you watched it. Okay, yeah, so yes, chime in, chime in. And then, so to kind of make her way, you know, she does things like models. And she becomes like the model for the James Bond illustrations on and and Pulp Fiction books. <laughs> like tons of things that you would never you would never know it was her, but she's been, she was all over popular culture and not not even acknowledged to who that was. And that's before she even starts this. And, and she very quickly gets into feminism and women's rights and uh, gender rights. And she's just trying to make her way in the world. And she has this idea, like one thing that women never talk about is their their actual sexual lives, especially back then. Like, what do they actually like? What do they not like? What do they feel nervous to admit? What do they feel nervous to ask about? So she just starts sending out these questionnaires, which are like, what, 30 questions long and they're very detailed questions things they're just open-ended things like you know you know what when was the first time that you pleasured yourself or did you know how to do it just stuff like that and so people would just write back long 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 returns thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of these and she compiles them into a book through a lot of heartache and stuff and all the way all the way she's meeting people and meeting up with various socialites and up and coming people in Manhattan and New York and and she's just making her way becomes world famous the real well there's a lot of interesting things here it's interesting just in kind of what she illuminates about the world about the gender roles, especially at the time when it's all blowing up in the seventies. But it's also very interesting to see how her, the pathway of her life and her career 
is affected and controlled by the forces that controlled the world. The, the rise, media. The, the media and the rise of gotcha media, the rise of conservatism, the neoconservatism in the 80s through now, and how it crushed this woman for even attempting to put this stuff out there. It's a fascinating story. Uh, if you think Gene Simmons will not appear in this, you're wrong. <laughs> if you think Donna Summer will not appear in this, you're also wrong. It's fascinating. I, I really love this documentary. Yeah, she's a very magnetic person. She's also, I think her, her main thing, this is not a spoiler, her main goal was to provide a voice, an outlet for people to express the interior lives of women that's when she started out. And I thought what was interesting is once the height, this is not, once the height report becomes successful, a bestseller, and there were so many steps that a lot of the publishing bigwigs decided not to actually, did not want this to be a bestseller and make them money, which it, they get into a little bit in the documentary. But it's interesting to see what she did with her success, which I found very endearing and very interesting because. I'm telling you, if someone gave me a big check, I would probably go on a sailboat, leave Eric and Bruce. I, I'll say, Bruce, take over my ACAST uh, podcasting about, uh, account. I'll, I'll leave. I'm going to leave. But she decides to go a different route. And she thanks. Well, I, I don't want to get too much, but she's a very interesting and at times, in my opinion, magnanimous person with the people who she knows and she loves, her colleagues. There are so many different layers to this documentary. Also, the look of this documentary, it provides a really interesting look at New York in, like Bruce was saying, the late 60s, early early to mid 70s, you can actually taste what it's like to have lived in New York. And it gives not only voice to Cher Height, but the people whom she loved and worked with, you get to see their just life as well along with her. So this is, I am so blown. I'm pretty much blown away by this documentary. I, maybe yeah. I'm reacting, but I, I was gobsmacked at how much I love the disappearance of Cher Height. My, if, I, if I have only one complaint is I didn't hear about this uh, soon enough. So, yeah, I feel like it's going to just get lost and buried, um, kind of unfortunately, like a lot of the stuff in her life. And uh, I agree with you about the New York stuff. That's very fascinating. Just even showing her first um, apartment that she has, which is like this basement apartment in some building in New York in the, what, 71? And how with, the rats and with stuff would be in there. Roaches and rats. Yeah. and then, But that, yet she somehow looks glamorous through all of it. And that's the thing you kind of have to, it's hard to overestimate for people who don't know anything about her, that she is this larger than life character in her own life. Like she is flamboyantly, you know, with her flamboyant, with her style, her clothing, the way she goes to the world. There's this great scene. And so wait, we, hold on. Sorry, Bruce. And it's not an affectation. No, it's what she is. Yeah. And she's kind of, you feel like everyone who comes in her orbit ends up kind of falling in love with her. And she doesn't not love them, but she kind of doesn't fully attach to them. So there's all these people that still love her and they're around her and helping her do stuff. And you see multiple at the same time that, you know, are in love with her. And that's really interesting. And then um, she has this way. Uh, even the porter at a hotel, yes, even yes. the porter is not safe at, at an apartment. Yes. <laughs> and there's this one scene I want to, I want to call out to, um, there's a lot of scenes of her being interviewed various times on TV by various people. And for people who aren't as old as myself and maybe Greg, you won't know like Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin, but there's a scene with her. I think it's with Mike Douglas. And I want to say, um, David Hasselhoff, David Hasselhoff. <laughs> and at first it didn't catch to me. And then one of her friends is also being interviewed at the same time. They kind of back into it with that 
cross interview where the person that they're talking to says like, oh yeah, she could go into full, full uh, bad bitch mode and become Betty Davis. And essentially then you see the rest of the scene and she's being Betty Davis blowing smoke in Mike Douglas's face that was while such, he's trying to call her out. That was such a cool moment. I really loved it. That was a great, great moment. So many really interesting moments. I Look, Eric Holmes, if you ever have time, if you did this, I don't, I don't think you have time, but the disappearance of Cher Height, a lot. And what's interesting is a lot of people mispronounce, I've mispronounced names too, but throughout the documentary, you pronounce it Cher Height. Sometimes they pronounce it, the media people, they pronounce it Sherry Height. But the, I think as far as the documentary goes, the per, correct pronunciation is Cher Height, the disappearance of Cher Height. It is directed by Academy Award nominee Nicole Noonan. And Nicole previously directed Crip Camp, which I still haven't seen. But after watching this, I'm off to go see Crip Camp because I'm so, I love this movie. This is, for me, rating wise, hands down, five stars for the disappearance of Cher Height. Bruce? Um, I think I'm going to go four and a half stars, but I don't have a great reason not to be five stars. But this is a very, very good documentary for sure. Okay, check it out on Friday, November 17th, specifically at the AMC Burbank 16. But again, we will be talking about this as the weeks progress to remind you listeners to search it out. And if you want, look, Bruce, you said, Mia God, there has to be a movie on this, right? There has to be a movie. There has this movie or not this movie. A series. <laughs> her, series. her life is waiting to be dramatized because there is so much. I mean, it's all there, right? I mean, you've got mm-hmm. fashion, you've got famous people, you've got vintage stuff, you've got music, you've got tons of nudity. If you want to throw that in there, it's there. You know, you've got it all, art, photography, the Traveling. sexual liberation of women. I yeah. mean, it's all there, man. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we don't want to give too much away what happens towards the second act, but yeah, this is a surprise of a documentary. This is, I think this is one of our big finds this year here on Cinematic. So four and a half stars for Bruce Perky. Five for me for the disappearance of Cher Height. Let's get to recommendations. We haven't heard from Eric for a while. And again, my apologies, Eric Holmes, because you actually went out and did the yeoman's work. Pay your hard-earned money. The monies you gain from your jobs and your life, hard-earned money to watch the Marvels, which I believe bombed over the weekend. Is that a shame as far as it's the fact that it didn't do so well at the box office? Is that a waste should people be watching the Marvels? Your thoughts on the movie? I don't know if it's a shame or not. I, I can say that the uh, theater was pretty sparse for these type of a lot more so than I was expecting. But uh, this one wasn't too bad. It, it was silly, kind of dumb. I think the best part of this movie is the Brie Larson, Tiona Paris, and Iman Vellani, kind of how their characters kind of interact with each other. Iman Vellani was probably my favorite part of this like her her kind of uh you know her uh character is just real infectious her joy of like oh i get to i get to be on a team with uh my hero or uh captain marvel well i i saw captain marvel but as anderson says it's in one eye out the other like it didn't really land with me uh didn't really care for it or maybe i did either way i don't remember it but this one i thought was a lot better than captain marvel because the, this one's like this is not a five-star movie by any stretch of the imagination but as far as like silly you know comic book movies go this one was pretty good um the plot was kind of all over the place uh mm-hmm. kind of kind of followed it a little bit but you know i think a lot uh, of people were saying the reason why i think the marvels didn't do so well over the and correct me if i'm wrong is i think a lot of people were saying well 
I'll just wait till it gets to Disney Plus as opposed to paying my money to seeing it opening weekend or maybe following weeks in the theater. Is is there a demarcation meaning is it worth watching in the theaters or is it okay if you watch this I guess good movie on your streaming service on Disney Plus? I, I would say no more or less than any other superhero movie. Um, you know, it, it, it's fine. You know, it's got the, it's got the, uh, middling CG that all these Marvel movies have, uh, for, for some reason they spend like $300 million on these things and the CG looks better in alien planet. And I'm not even joking. And mm-hmm. alien planet costs like 10 bucks to make. So I, wow. I guess maybe, maybe when you make these movies, you know, I mean, look, the CGI looks fine for a blockbuster, but I mean, we all know how the, these CGI companies are like cool we need uh three billion effect shots cool well we got like three four years to do this no you got two months oh well these are gonna look like crap then but all right (laughs) but uh yeah i think uh just the way the the team the marvels team kind of uh bounces off each other and works together is a lot of fun to watch oh there's a musical scene in this it kind of comes out of nowhere they go to this planet where people can only speak in song. And so it kind of turns into a musical. That was kind of silly. And I kind of dug that. And it worked in, in the context th- of the story. I thought it did. I, I've heard other reviews. It's like, oh, they, they sullied the good name of the MCU by throwing in a musical. I'm like, dude, that's anytime someone takes a swing like that. I'm like, go for it. I do not care. I kind of, I kind of dig it. Um, what, what else? What else? Oh, uh, and so Nia DaCosta uh, co-wrote and directed this. She also did the Candyman movie. Uh, this is by far not better than the Candyman remake. In fact, uh, Nia DaCosta, like, I didn't see a bunch of her. It didn't feel like a Nia DaCosta movie. It felt like a Marvel movie, just like a fun, a funner one than um, or entertaining one that I've seen in the past. But, you know, that's kind of how the MCU works, isn't it? Hey, we're going to get this uh, really uh, exciting f- new filmmaker and then have them do the exact same movie that the rest of us, are, you know, that the rest of ours are like. Um, maybe Taika Waititi notwithstanding, but uh, it didn't feel like a Nia DaCosta movie. It felt like a definitely felt like a MCU movie. Uh, but overall, oh, 90 minutes. Keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, right. that, that, that might have had a lot to do with it. They go in and out and don't kind of overstay their welcome. And there was also a good, um, uh, beyond the musical scene, there was also a really good montage scene. Because one of the things that happened is like they're entangled somehow. So if uh, like Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel use their power at the same time, they swap places from where they're at, which, you know, if they're within eyeshot, it's not that big of a deal. But if Captain Marvel's on some planet and uh, Ms. Marvel's talking with her parents and they use their power, and then all of a sudden Captain Marvel's there. Parents are like, where where's Kamala at? I don't know. So uh, but they have a uh, they have a little montage uh, showing how they got their how they kind of work their powers. And so that's one. And then there's a post credit scene. I'm sure everyone that cares already knows what it is, uh, but I won't spoil it regardless. But that was kind of fun. Although one problem with the post credit scene is it was actually the ending of the movie. It should have been at the end of the movie, not a post credit scene. Mm. But the the thumbs up there is it's not just, hey, look at me show up. It's, it's actually continues the story um, no. or rather ends the story that this movie was so overall not bad glad to saw it all right the marvels eric Holmes, what is your final rating on the film i would probably give this a three stars three stars from eric Holmes. that's good generous smiles recommendation 
from Eric Holmes. And then one final recommendation. Bruce Perky, you went into David Fincher land over the past week. Your thoughts yeah. on The Killer? Yeah, I don't have too much to say other than um, I originally wasn't quite as high as Eric. Um, I kind of threw the call out to the other cinematics and kind of said, like, what are some of my nagging problems were? Most of those they actually answered for me and made me feel better about. And actually sitting on it, I feel a little bit better. I still am a little disappointed by the ending just slightly because I feel like it's kind of leaving a door open for more killer the killers and I kind of felt like it was going down a road where it would be um wrapped up in a single movie but you felt cheated at the ending is that I just felt it didn't satisfy me it didn't lead to the logical conclusion that it 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 had all evidence to be leading towards but that's okay. It, it's it's a minor it's a very minor gripe. That's like <laughs> I got this great milkshake Sunday confection and they just didn't put that cherry on top uh it was still pretty damn good yeah this is Fincher firing on all cylinders in a way that he hasn't recently so I think this is going to be very very satisfying especially to people who weren't quite into the last few movies although I how, how dare you like Sully Manx don't don't Sully Manx oh no I'm just saying I, I like all that stuff okay. but I mean a lot of people are kind of like why isn't he making more you know uh Zodiacs or why isn't he making more you know pick those kind of movies so I think this is going to really uh, satisfy that plus this is one of those movies that has at minimum two or three fantastic sequences and they're not all action sequences you know i say that the for me the two best sequences well the three best so honestly the opening's great there's a fantastic fight sequence at one point and there's a really fantastic conversation face off between him and another person and i think all three of those are just just it's at a it's at a restaurant if you're wondering eric oh okay <laughs> I, I was like i can think of two really good ones i'm yeah. not sure which one I mean, you're talking about so i mean at least those three things are enough to get you to keep you going through this movie it's 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 very good okay so that is the killer currently streaming on netflix bruce what is your rating on the film uh i'm four and a half just because of that cherry on top wasn't quite there for me but <laughs> Still a very strong rating. And yeah. before we go, we have the box movie, which is Bob the Gambler and Peter Beta and his MCFC, Middle Class Film Class crew, will lead us into it. Pete, why don't you drop that beat? Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Bob Le Flambeur, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. I saw this movie when I was in my 20s. It got me on the Melville, Jean-Pierre Melville kick, and I haven't seen it since. So my <laughs> my knowledge is blurry. And I just remember it not I, – I remember liking the movie, but I wish I'd rewatched it at, you know, in time for this um, episode, but I didn't. How, how did you feel about Bob the Gambler? So I don't think I've seen, I'm trying to think now, I don't think I've seen any other Melville movies. I could be wrong because I didn't go back to look at his whole... Um, Le Samurai? No, I have not. Uh, Le Cirque Rouge, aka The Red Circle? No, but that's on my list to see for sure. Okay, an Army of Shadows, which I think is his best nope. film. That's okay. No, nope. nope. okay. so I haven't. And I think this is considered the kickoff to that, I guess, a series of crime or crime world type movies. And this is considered a very, very influential movie in international cinema, from my understanding. And many, many people, great directors, cite this as one of their favorite movies. I think um, Neil Jordan, sorry, Bruce, I think Neil Jordan did a remake of Bob the Gambler years later. I'll look it up right now. Yeah, I know there was someone named a remake of it. So Bob Le Flambeau, or 
Bob the Gambler, 1956, Jean-Pierre Melville. This is interesting. I did a, a little research I found out was something like he was originally, I think, tagged to do Rafifi. Mm. And at the time, he didn't think there was a reason he didn't do it. And he actually tagged Dassin to make Rafifi. And then he made this. And my understanding also is that uh, Melville was never, like, he was always kind of outsider indie kind of guy, even in the French world. And they wouldn't like officially accept him into the director's group. So he just said, F you, I'm going to make my own movies on the side all the time. I had kept that independent spirit. My understanding is throughout. Once again, I'm no scholar on Melville. So you can correct me if I'm wrong. Probably Joseph Bridges will. And I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What this movie does, it's very interesting, is it's kind of a combo platter. It's half heist movie, but not near to the degree of precision and focus as Rafifi, which is like got a huge chunk that's just straight heist. This movie is somewhere in between. And I can see why I think also Tarantino Tarantino loves this movie because this is half world of denizens in uh, Montmartre, I guess it is, the area of Paris. Uh, Half that and half heist kind of stuff and half just the character... That's three halves. I <laughs> figured out the math there. <laughs> of uh, Bob. And Bob it starts as Roger, Roger Duchesne. I don't know how to say the name. It starts out, it's morning. Morning is dawning on the netherworld of this area of Paris, I believe, if I understand correctly, called Montmartre. As the world is waking up, Bob is just finishing his night of gambling. And he's walking out into the light. And there's a young woman on the street. He kind of passes her on the way and they end up crossing paths more. He crossed paths with a, a pimp that he hates. And he makes it very clear, very early on, he hates those people. He does not agree with that. He is in the criminal world. He seems to be respected by all these different kind of gangster types and lowlifes and all this kind of stuff. And he's kind of above them, but he's kind of not. And he used to be a bank robber. Uh, he had gone to prison. And now he's, quote, living a more straight and narrow life by just be basically being a gambler, as far as you can tell. But he's living okay. But he also get the feeling that he goes through periods where he loses and he's not doing so okay. And really, the first, I don't know, I'd say 30 minutes of this movie is just kind of a day in the life with this guy. You know, you're seeing what his apartment looks like. He's meeting up with this young woman who's almost falling into prostitution and kind of taking him under her, taking her under his wing, but not abusing her, but introducing to him to this young protege he has. And that guy immediately wants to be with her. And very quickly, he kind of goes on this gambling spree and he discovers this uh, casino uh, is got, I don't know, their equivalent in money, but it's like 800 million francs is going to be there at a certain time. And the inability to resist that kind of a allure is uh, too much for him. So then I would say the middle chunk of this movie is uh, gathering the, the things you do, right? Gathering the crew. Some of them are characters we've already met. Some of them are new characters trying to figure out how they're going to you know, break into this place, mapping it out, all that kind of stuff. And then the final act is how that does or doesn't play out for him and how Things may or may not go awry. What you will love about this movie is, if you like this kind of thing, is going to be the look. This kind of very, it's kind of this crossover between American noir and European almost getting into French New Wave. So you've kind of got this, the styles kind of colliding. And I think a lot of people love that about this movie. And the other side you're going to like is it's it's somewhat of a heist movie. Just don't go in thinking it's a super... 
uh, focused heist movie, or you might be disappointed. And then I really ended up loving the ending because the ending goes a way I was not expecting. Mm, very, very yes. good. I don't Bob. know if you remember the ending of this movie. No, I do not. No, I do. The not. ending, I think watching it now, you might really appreciate the ending because the ending, it takes this weird left turn and I cannot describe it without giving something away, but it, it really subverted my expectation in a way that I thought was quite awesome. Bruce, after watching Bob Flambeau, are you mm -hmm. more interested in down the road watching more of Melville's films? For sure. Yeah, I really like the style. And it was, like I said, once again, a weird combination of, because sometimes the camera was very active and sometimes it was just like, you felt like he was just sitting in the backseat of a car filming people, very almost cinema verite style. But at other times it was locked down and moody and, you know, cool shadows and all that stuff. Also, I wondered if the Bob character, I, I know this is probably not true, if it influenced James Bond at all. Because he has a very, he has that rough guy, but suave kind of combo going on here. And there's a whole bunch of Baccarat in this too. <laughs> so that also made me think of it too. Oh, that's very cool. So that is Bob Flambeau. It's, I don't know how you, did you watch it on digital? Did you, I, I think it's available on streaming right now is of the, is this recording? It's on Canopy. So, but you had to actually. I rented it because I don't okay. have Canopy. I might get canopy soon. If my kids got a college <laughs> through the college, I might be able to get it. That'll save you a lot of money. <laughs> we did not hear that. Yeah. I'll spend $10,000 a year to get canopy. <laughs> That's so don't a do deal. <laughs> okay. So just FYI, again, this is, I think you said in the 1956 or, or 50s yeah, or something. 56 what? is what I got it written down as. Who knows okay. if I'm right. So 1956, Bob LeFambeau, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. Years later in 2000, oh, 2002, Nick Nolte starred in a remake of Bob the Gambler called The Good Thief, directed by the crying game filmmaker Neil Jordan. So it would be I remember, yes, I remember watching The Good Thief in 2002, I think in preparation for interviews and being disappointed because I remember loving Bob the Gambler so much way back when. So I have no memory of either. Yeah, so. this seems like it's, it's so much of this is the style and the time that, that makes this work. That the story itself, uh, trying to remake it, doesn't seem like the right idea <laughs> unless you yeah. totally remake it with a different style, you know? Right. I think the one movie that you and Eric need to see, obviously, Le Cirque Rouge is really good. I remember Anderson Cowan was really bashing Le Samurai. It wasn't his film. Mm -hmm. It just yeah. did not like it whatsoever. I love Le Samurai. Cirque Rouge is great, but Army of Shadows, once you guys see it, it's. I think it's on the same level. I think we had this discussion earlier this week with other people on the Cinematics Facebook group, but... Army of Shadows is on the level of the wages of fear, in my opinion. Oh, yes, yes, one last thing I'll mention. One of the best movie slaps I've ever seen is in this movie. If it's not a real slap he does to that woman, I, it looks like that actress was like, what happened to me just now? Well, <laughs> I, I, he... That's amazing. Well, this is apples and oranges, Bruce, but I know Eric is a huge fan of Rafifi. Does this reach Rafifi levels as far as quality cinema? Quality, yes. I don't know if it would... If it would please him as much because Rafifi think what, what Rafifi has going for it is just the amazing heist sequence. This is extended heist sequence. I think it's more of a pure heist movie. I think that's why the big warning I would give to this movie is it's not a very pure heist movie. I would say the heist here is almost given away in this movie. It's not as very important in the long run. It's more of a, it's more of the life of low lives and gangsters in, you know, France in the fifties. I think look at it that way with a heist kind of thrown in inside. Okay. And that is uh, almost a, a four and a half for you, right, Bruce? Or that's exactly it. Four and a half. Four and a half stars for Bruce Berkey for Bob the Gambler, Bob Leflambeur. We're done. We're finished with episode 216. Final thoughts, Eric Holmes. 
Let's see. Did a food truck. So that that, that was good. If, you did, uh, what, if you're in the Colorado Springs area, we'll be doing some food trucking down at uh, Triple Nickel. Um, okay. For everyone else, I, I guess you don't get to go. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Food truck. Um, Triple Nickel. Okay. Very cool. I should also point out, uh, we got uh, the Dirty South. Uh, we're supposed to mention that it's releasing theaters on demand and digital on November 10th, which was five days ago, but you can watch it now. Okay. Very um, cool. And I got a couple of interviews coming up. And by a couple, I mean a thousand interviews. <laughs> yeah, we will. Uh, there's a lot. Yes, listeners, listen to our cinematics episode. We, we, we might as well call it the Eric Holmes interview feed. We'll post that on, on Friday. There's going to be a couple of things he's going to mention. I'll, I'll upload that on Friday. And yeah, yeah, it's good that we are opening up that interview feed as well. And we also changed hosting providers. We were Buzzsprout before, and now we're on this platform called Acast. I will put a link for it where you can get a cast on on your personal feed for cinematics. Okay, Bruce, final thoughts? Oh gosh, I forget the box. It's like a bit now. What's in the bleeping box, Bruce? What's in the box? Let's see. While I'm picking stuff out of the box, I would say, uh, hey, everyone, if you have Apple TV, you can go this Friday and watch uh, Monarch. Check that out. And if you've been looking for a good documentary, The Disappearance of Share Height, for sure. All right. What do we got here? Oh, also, uh, Paprika is going to be the next movie on the middle class film class that I had suggested. So want to hear that? I'm going to probably go rewatch it because I have to refresh my memory. The World According to Garp. The World According to Garp. Is that your personal uh, vote? I or? don't remember. I have to look at my list to find out. <laughs> okay. Definitely. Check out Bruce's. Look, I have to put it on our Find Your Film findyourfilms.com website for the, the thing I haven't gotten yet. But there's like, I think, 70 or 80 movies that are in the box right now bruce or maybe 50 movies that are in the box and there's still 20 that bruce has to yeah that to make slips for. of paper for yeah the world of carnegie garp is a movie i loved back when it first came out and i haven't seen probably for 25 years and i think there's a lot of people out there that have never probably watched it and it might end up being the best lost what uh john lithgow and the best lost the lost my brain's forgetting robin williams robin williams and N- Nastasha Kinski. No, no. Who's the 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 mom? Oh, the mom. I mean, I'll I'll look that up right now. Oh my god! I always get there's that. so many great actors in this, and I bet so many people have not seen it. Oh, Glenn younger, Close, right? Glenn Close. Glenn Close. Yeah. People that are younger than probably forty or thirty five have not even probably heard of this movie, and they will be quite surprised by how awesome this movie is. Oh, really cool. I always, when I was a, a youth, I always got Hotel New Hampshire. And no. the world according to Garp mixed Same up. Same author, very different, very much different movies. This movie is so much better, I think, than Hotel New Hampshire, which is Nastasia Kinski, I believe. Yes, very good. Bruce and Jody Pookie. Foster. Yes, yes, very good. And Eric Holmes, you, were gonna, you wanted to say something? Or you had a, something? Um, oh, no, you good? Are you good? Uh, you don't think so? Okay. Oh, yeah. Thanksgiving. Eli Ross Thanksgiving comes out in theaters this week. You going to watch yeah. it? Probably. Okay. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm one of Eli Ross' like three fans. I, it, like everyone else always craps on his movies. I'm like, I kind of like them. Okay. I, don't, I don't know what's wrong with y'all, but my name is Paul and I dig them. <laughs> okay. We'll be back next week with Eric's take on Thanksgiving along with other movies. Thanks again for listening to us this week on Cinematics. Again, check us out again on Friday for those interviews. Have a great week watching movies. And of course, here's Claire. Bye, everybody. Thank you for joining Cinematics.